This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 26, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. What has happened to the housing market since COVID-19 arrived in the U.S.? How realistic are the hopes that Congress and the president will successfully help the massive mortgage buyers Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac emerge from conservatorship without another massive taxpayer bailout? Mark Calabria directs the Federal Housing Finance Agency, otherwise known as the chief regulators of Fannie and Freddie. We spoke earlier this week about the housing market, more specifically the mortgage market, and where the housing market stands today. What has been the impact on the overall mortgage market of COVID-19 so far um, for many people who purchased homes in May or June or April? You might not have been able to tell. Well, so let's start with recognizing that the primary impact on the housing and mortgage market of COVID has been rather indirect through the job through the job market and income market. So we really didn't have as much of a housing shock as we had uh, 20 plus million people laid off, um, some temporary, not so temporary. Uh, and of course, Congress did expand unemployment insurance and there were relief payments. Uh, so most people used those to pay their rent, pay their mortgages. Uh, and of course, we had a small number for the Fannie and Freddie book there were about 200,000 households that were already in some process of foreclosure pre-COVID, which is why we at FHFA decided uh, that we would allow those people to stay in place to facilitate social distancing. Assumed that they're already there. Uh, Unlikely that in many localities had already shut down the foreclosure process. Uh, And so it seemed a, a reasonable position to say, let's keep you in place. Let's pause the eviction process. We don't want sheriffs going through your house in this environment. Um, and so those were paused. Uh, for a number of people looking to buy um, during that time, the biggest impact was the number of local government functions. So to buy a house, you need to transfer the deed, for instance. Courthouses across the country were shut down for much uh, of, of the early, certainly April and into May. Uh, so we rolled out, and a number of people in the industry worked together to roll out, say, you know, remote notarization, things that you could do at a distance, you know, flexibilities in terms of appraisal. You couldn't substitute for everything. Uh, and so, of course, you did see a massive decline uh, in home sales uh, in April and May, uh, partly because it, the, much of the process itself had shut down. So much of the real estate sales process is tremendously face-to-face. Uh, there are a lot of um, components in it for the local government to service providers. Uh, of course, many people tried to find ways to do those. I've I've heard of a number of cases where, you know, somebody would go, they'd set up a table in their driveway and sign the paper and then move away. And, you know, the title agent would come and cite it. So there have been a lot of flexibilities have been given. But, you know, coming out of this, we have seen a really big bump. If you look at purchase mortgage applications and home sales, uh, you know, I was certainly somebody who was concerned, say, the beginning of May, that we would come out of this with real weakness in home prices and sales. And and so far, that hasn't been the case. So how much of that uh, decline in home sales was uh, skittish sellers or skittish buyers just saying, you know what, let's let's wait a little bit of a while? Because I, I remember the vol- I was watching this very closely, oh, yeah. uh, the volumes, at least uh, where where I live, uh, the, what was available for sale declined uh, quite a bit. Yeah. So nationally, you saw uh, delistings, uh, probably about 30 percent or so of listings 
were delisted during that time. People would, you know, call their realtor and say, I'm going to take my home off the market now. Um, some of it was was a reflection of just discomfort. You know, I don't really want somebody coming through my house while I'm sheltering in place and, and taking a look. Or, you know, a lot of the offers during those times were essentially distressed lowballs. Like, you know, okay, I'm willing to buy your house now, but, you know, you need to take off 20%. And so a lot of sellers who, did, who weren't forced to sell, if you will, uh, decided, I'm, I'm going to wait this out. Uh, and of course, uh, anybody who wanted to buy during that time may have delayed uh, for a number of reasons. They, they might have lost their job. They might have been, even if they didn't lose their job, they might have been uncertain about the future of their job. Uh, and of course, a number of, even though there were a number of flexibilities put in place by lenders, there was still a number of obstacles. Uh, and But I do think, and you've touched upon this a little bit, the biggest thing here was just uncertainty. I mean, do you want to buy a house when you don't know what house prices you know, you really had a huge range of outcomes. You had where we could have continued going up, could have flatlined, could have just dropped off a cliff. And I certainly think in April and May, uh, you know, you still had a lot of uncertainty over the path of the virus. You know, people did not know how it was being spread necessarily. And so I think there was a lot of cautiousness and that was somewhat expected. Uh, and I certainly thought that you would have a little bit of that, and then we would get through it. And then you know, you'd have a little more of a sense of where the market was going and people coming back into the market, uh, which we've had. And of course, it's certainly worth saying, you know, you've seen a lot of parts of the job market come back, but you've also still seen hospitality, leisure, big parts of tourism, big parts of the job market are still pretty much down. I will note, you know, we saw data very early on in March, and this has been consistent, um, that the majority of people who lost their jobs were renters. So, you know, again, a lot of people who weren't ready to buy anyhow. And, and so I would say the primary stress in the housing market during this time has been on the renter side. And of course, a lot of stress in seniors housing, student housing, obviously senior living facilities, uh, things like that's really where the big hit has been. And of course, uh, retail uh, real estate as well. I see from Bloomberg here just today that the home mortgage delinquencies climbed in May to their highest level since November 2011. So you did see a really big jump. And what I would say you have to caveat with that delinquency number is uh, people in forbearance plans are being counted in that delinquency if they haven't paid. So uh, starting in the Fadey and Freddie book, which is what I see every day, every morning, I get delinquency numbers, forbearance numbers. You have about 6.4% of Fadey and Freddie borrowers who are in a forbearance plan. Interestingly enough, about a fourth of those have paid, made their payment throughout this forbearance plan, you know, really just took it as an option, yet continue to pay. Um, and so you've seen people take this as just, uh, you know, an option, a liquidity option. I really want to emphasize the data that we look at, that the overwhelming majority of people in forbearance were, were never delinquent before, were previously current, have a lot of equity. And so what I, the reason I raise all this is to say, um, certainly these numbers are, are of concern, but it's not an apples and apples comparison to say where we were in the crisis, because many people really are been encouraged to take a break and are taking a break. And this is not the same thing as the big decline we saw, uh, you know, post 2008. Okay. So uh, moving on to commercial real estate, what has been the impact on COVID there? I assume it's been m much more marked. It really has been. 
And of course, we saw this even before COVID, where retail, for instance, was was really getting pressure. Um, the retail industry, which actually even over the last several years, jobs in retail have been shedding. Um, but of course, you see the flip side of that, you know, the growth of the Amazons and, and such, you know, warehouse space, for instance, continue to do well, whereas retail, downtown retail has continued to take a hit and really took a big hit here. Restaurant space has taken a lot of pressure. You know, obviously, I mentioned like senior, you know, assisted living facilities. You know, obviously, we saw a tremendous, I believe the numbers are what, um, a fourth to a third of the, the COVID deaths have been nursing homes. So you've really seen a lot of uh, questions and questions and pressure uh, in that segment, unsurprisingly. Uh, and there'll be continue to be a lot of questions. Certainly a question for me in terms of the housing market, which is the residential housing market, which most directly impacts my job and, and the portfolio I have to watch out for, is if there are really big declines in real estate prices in the commercial sector, you know, does that put downward pressure on land values? Does that essentially you know, have some contagion adverse pressure on residential real estate. What I would say is so far we aren't seeing that, but I, I, I would say it's too early to dismiss that possibility. Now for, uh, I'm just imagining uh, a lot of workers in the United States who uh, until March were driving to work every day and have the kinds of jobs uh, that they can do from home and maybe their employer has learned something in the process of this pandemic could the could the net effect be positive on housing that it, that is to say home values go up more people are people are spending a lot more time there and plan to continue doing so if i can channel my real estate industry friends for a second uh, location 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 and so i do think the top line question going forward is you know are we going to see uh, this recognition, as you mentioned, of more people can work from home and therefore maybe I don't need to be in Midtown. Maybe I don't need to be in downtown D.C. Maybe I don't need to be in downtown San Francisco. And so are we going to see a shift out of cities to more suburban, rural? Certainly, you know, one of the things we did see in the numbers was the last couple of weeks, really big spike in home improvement spending. So a lot of people, you know, looked around the house from quarantine and said, Maybe I should fix that, or I'd really like to have this added to the house, or you know, or I really wish I had a bigger yard, or I had another extra living room, or something. And so I do think you're starting to see, and you, and, and again, this is part of that pop up in home sales we've been seeing. I do think there's a big questioning of, you know, is the living space I have where I where I need to be, where I want to be, and configured in a way that that will suit me if my work environment changes, and so. While I don't think that most employers are going to go the way of Twitter, where everybody can apparently now work at home forever, uh, many employers are, are going to have flexibility, certainly for the remainder of the year. Many employers will have flexibilities beyond that. So I do think that this is probably going to mean better. It'll, it'll support prices in suburban rural locations. Certainly one question, you know, we've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence about, you know, a lot of New York city residents deciding they're going to go up to the Adirondacks and such and you know, go out and buy their you know vacation home uh, two hours or three hours within a drive. And so the question is, do they still keep the home in the city? And I do want to emphasize that's a small segment, of course, of, of borrowers. But I do think that there's a lot of questions about, you know, how is this going to spread out from, from the cities? Uh, and so think certainly, you know, I do want to emphasize with that point, however, that there's still a lot of um, 
rationale to be located in the New York or San Francisco. You know, the pay is often more, the productivity is higher. So uh, I don't think this is the end of urban living, but I do think you start start to see some downward pressure. And that, quite frankly, might not be necessarily a bad thing, given that the New Yorks and San Francisco's pre-COVID had incredibly tight housing markets. So it's not as if we're going to start to see double-digit vacancy rates, you know, in San Francisco. We'll just see uh, the temperature come down maybe just a little bit. Just a little bit. And and again, given how overheated these particular markets have been, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a bad thing. All right. So homeownership rates uh, today are about where they were in the 60s. And should anyone outside of uh, politicians care? Well, I think we should care about the access to property and home ownership. I think where policy has gone sort of sideways in the past has been focused on a particular number. There's no magic home ownership number. You know, there, there's no socially, I don't think we, you know, if there is a socially optimal home ownership rate, I, I don't believe we know enough to know what it is. If I could channel a little Hayekian knowledge problem there. Um, but that said, uh, I do think that property ownership and home ownership is fundamental to a free society. I, I think it's something that people aspire to. I think it's something that gives you a stake in your neighborhood. And of course, as we've repeatedly seen, where you live uh, does today have a big impact on you know the police services you have access to, the healthcare services you have access to. So, for instance, uh, I live here in Ward Two of Washington D.C. and I and I look at the COVID numbers every morning and. You'll notice that over in Ward 8, Ward 5, Ward 6, that's where the impact of COVID has been you know, most, most dramatic. And so I think it's a really important impact, point, point to keep in mind that where you live does really depend, does, does really determine the, essentially the bundle of public services you get. And so I do think that we should uh, try to improve the bundle of public services available to everybody. Uh, in that regard. Um, but I don't think we should artificially try to target a certain home ownership rate. And I certainly think we need to be cognizant of, um, you know, home ownership is actually having a, a piece of the property. Um, Ian, you know, over time, home ownership policy has really been what I would call mortgage policy, where we've been more centered on, you know, increasing leverage rather than necessarily increasing home ownership. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you can drill down into the numbers uh, here today, but in terms of homeownership in the 60s versus today, uh, what fractions of people's homes did they own versus today? This is actually a great point. So if you go back to pre-1960, uh, in fact, the majority of homeowners in 1960 owned their homes free and clear. And I guess, I, you know, maybe it's, a, perhaps it is a generational thing, but no, I still remember growing up in my parents and many people's parents talking about like, you know, a mortgage burning party and, you know, now it's your home. So to put that in contrast, again, in 1960, the majority of homeowners owned their home free and clear, no mortgage at all. Today, it's about a third of homeowners own their homes free and clear. So it's still a substantial, I mean, a third is not insignificant. Um, but it's still not where you were. And of course, for those homeowners who do have a mortgage today, the amount of equity they have today is far less than it's been in the past because of the increasing leverage we've seen. So not only would I reinforce your earlier point that 
you know, over time, we have not seen trend increases in, in home ownership, which I have to say is quite surprising in a way in that, you know, the two biggest determinants of home ownership for a population tend to be age. So the older you get, the more likely you are to be a homeowner um, and income. And so clearly compared to 1960 or 1930 or 1900, the population today is considerably older. So, uh, and of course, uh, despite some of, you know, and I know there are a lot of debates out there about income inequality and income growth, but per capita, median, however you want to measure it, the typical income in real terms today is certainly higher than it was in 1960. So given historically that the biggest drivers of home ownership, the demographics, age, and of course, there are other things that push back. Certainly a big determinant of home ownership is family structure. And, and we've certainly seen, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm at Heritage to say uh, we've seen a decline in two, two, fam- two, fam- two parent households, but a two parent household is a really big predictor of home ownership rate, for instance. So just, you know, reading what the data say, there are a number of factors which suggest actually that home ownership should have increased rather than decreased. Um, and again, I think part of this gets back to the fundamental problem that, you know, we see these factors tend to be demand driven. So the more income you have, the more housing you buy. Um, the problem fundamentally facing housing and housing affordability in America is lack of supply. You know, and until we deal with the inability to build, and of course, a number of your colleagues there have written extensively on this, um, but it is really the fundamental factor driving housing affordability is just the the inability to build, the time it takes, the shortage in supply, and that really has fundamentally undermined the, what would have otherwise been a significant increase in home ownership. All right. Why does no other country on earth have a Fannie and Freddie equivalent? Well, you know, I think there's a number of good questions for that. Fundamentally, the reason we created Fannie and Freddie you know, of course, we created Fannie initially in the 30s and, and Freddie much later in the 70s um, was because we had a very fragmented banking system. So if you go back to the banking system of the 30s, uh, it was a unit banking system. Remind you that, you know, until the mid 90s in many places like Texas, you couldn't even have a second location as a bank. And so you had a lack of geographic diversification in the banking system. You had a lack of access to the capital markets. Uh, I know George Selgin and many others have talked about you know, compared the U.S. to the Canadian banking system, where it's fewer banks, but they've got a national scope. And so essentially, Fannie and Freddie and the federal home loan banks, who I also regulate, they were fundamentally created to offset the lack of geographic diversification and scale in commercial banking. And because other countries don't seem to have that level, um, you know, of artificial barriers, and certainly would say, you know, all of those barriers were really state, local in nature, regulatory barriers. So it's certainly important to keep in mind uh, the U.S. has never had a free market banking system. We certainly didn't in the 1800s. We didn't in the new, going into the New Deal when Fannie and Freddie were, when Fannie was created, Freddie much later. Um, so again, it, it was essentially, as, the, as some economists would say, the second best. You created one set of interventions to offset the impact of a, of a previous set of interventions. Um. Fannie and Freddie gobble up a lot of mortgages. Uh, they are in conservatorship. Uh, any self-respecting taxpayer would like to see them exit conservatorship and be accountable more directly to shareholders than, well, people like you. Agreed. What has to happen in order for those institutions to uh, leave the government nest and go 
duke it out in the marketplace in a very real sense. So let me first kind of really emphasize a point, because I think this point is often missed in the external debates. Congress established Fannie and Freddie as shareholder-owned private companies. That's what they are today. And so a conservatorship is essentially an administrative bankruptcy. So just like a company, like look at Hertz, that's going through a number of problems today, not surprisingly because of weakness in tourism. You know, Hertz is in a bankruptcy. There is a government-appointed official, a judge, who's overseeing that process. Essentially, what I am doing is playing the role of a bankruptcy judge in rehabilitating Fannie and Freddie. They maintain, they maintain as private companies. My job is how do you repair and restructure them so that they can leave this process and get back on their feet again? Now, they're primarily in conservatorship because of loss of solvency and capital. So foremost is you have to build the capital back up to be safe and sound to leave. And that's the top line. Now, of course, you know, when uh, they initially went into conservatorship in 2008, you know, they were losing substantial sums of money. The immediate response at that time in a conservatorship was essentially to stop the bleeding. So just like if you're in the hospital, you, you, know, let, you know, let's say you, you deal with the initial problem, stop the bleeding, if you will, in this case financially, then you get to healing where you can get back out. And so we're in the healing phase right now where we're building capital. There are a number of other supervisory problems that Fannie and Freddie have to address. Uh, and let me really emphasize that, you know, I'm under a statutory obligation to fix them and get them out. You know, th- there's sometimes a, a sense out there that we're supposed to have kept them in limbo forever. And that's not that's not what the law demands. That's not what good government demands. Uh, it's to put them on their feet again, get them operating as close as possible to look like every other private financial company. Um, and that's the objective. But again, building capital is first and foremost in that process. All right. Building capital. How? I mean, well, I, know, I know you have sure. a rule that you've been uh, you're, that you're hopeful uh, about. Uh, what does that look like? So, of course, a, a capital rule is a target. It's, it's not it's not a substitute for capital itself. Um, and so we have started building capital uh, through retained earnings, which, of course, is actually how most companies build a lot of capital over time is retained earnings. Um, it's our expectation that, you know, sometime in 2021 or 2022 that feeding Freddie would do some sort of public offering. I do want to emphasize, you know, just like, you know, the conversation recently about whether Hertz should raise equity in bankruptcy or not was not a decision driven by the judge, but driven by the company. And fundamentally, how they get capital is really on the company's fan and Freddie to figure out. Uh, my job is to set the rules of the game. Uh, if you want to get out, this is what you've got to achieve. If you want to be considered safe and sound, this is what you've got to achieve. And it's on you to achieve it. And so I do want to emphasize that, you know, you either build retained earnings, you can potentially sell off assets to raise capital, or you raise equity. And you could raise it publicly, you could raise it privately, you know, Fannie and Freddie just recently announced that they've hired financial advisors. We hired a financial advisor recently. Uh, what I would say is we're still early in the process. So quite frankly, anything is on the table. Uh, you know, if if there's a huge, uh, again, given the size of these companies, we are talking, you know, hundreds of billions that are going to have to be raised at the end of the day, either via retained earnings, private raisings, or public raisings. So these may potentially be the largest public offerings in history. Wow. No small feat. <laughs> and, certainly, and certainly not something done, you know, in a, in, in a short amount of time. Depending on how things shake out in this 2020 election year, 
how hopeful are you that uh, even with a uh, Democratic Congress and a possible, possibly a Democratic president, that this process will continue and that uh, Fannie and Freddie will continue to just uh, will move along and hopefully exit conservatorship and be more directly accountable to shareholders? So uh, let me say, as, as, as I think you know, um, I'm an independent regulator. Um, my term runs to 2024. I have every intention of serving that term. Um, I hope that whoever comes after me, because I believe fundamentally what I'm doing is simply carrying out the law as Congress has decided it, I'd like to think that whatever successor I have would also take the perspective that their job is to carry out the law as Congress has decided it. Uh, and Congress has decided that there's a conservatorship or the responsibility to fi- either take the companies into receivership if they can't be fixed or to fix and get them out. So uh, I would hope that at a minimum, uh, I've set us on the path to get these companies out and looking more like normal companies and moving the uh, carrying out of the conservatorship and the, and the carrying out of FHA more in alignment with what the law requires. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I would say in my 15 months there, the dialogue around this has really changed, and, and and I've been very heartened by how quickly it's changed. That you know, once you start going around and telling people, well, you know, we're going to follow the law, and there's branches like, oh yeah, okay, maybe we should be following the law. Uh, and so hopefully that sticks beyond me, because again, uh, I think that's a crucially important aspect of this. And and again, we've put it in the right direction. I'm very optimistic that that will make progress. I'll certainly add with a caveat of, um, it'll be. In- It'll be very, very difficult to raise capital for these entities if we do see the housing market take a big decline or we see the equity markets take a big decline. So I'm certainly very cognizant of that there are macroeconomic financial market uh, parameters far outside of my control that, that do determine the timing and feasibility of this. Mark Calabria directs the Federal Housing Finance Agency. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.